Our reading for today is the concluding chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. So the entire chapter, uh, chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. You may be sure, sorry, after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Thank you, Christina. Morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name is Pete Snow. I am assistant minister here. Uh, Titus is a letter written to to a pastor in Crete. And uh, just for a few moments, I tried to justify in my mind a research trip as a pastor going to Crete to investigate the culture and couldn't quite manage it, so I kept quiet about it. As we turn to this letter, I, I, I must draw your attention to Titus 3 this morning, but we need God's help. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly King, Father, Spirit, and Son, we come to you this morning uh, needing your help for our lives, for godliness. We pray you'd remind us of the truth and show us how to do good. We pray in the power of the Spirit, through the name of Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. What sort of society do you want to live in? What sort of society... I'm not talking about um, politics and policies. I'm not talking about Labour or Tory, Brexit or not. Don't worry, we won't go there. Um, but I'm talking about the sort of people that you want to live alongside. I'm talking about your neighbours. What sort of person would you like to live next door to? 
the Bible paints a beautiful picture of what the church should look like. So in theory, if you end up living next, to, next door to a Bible person, a real-life, living, breathing Christian, then in theory, you should have the best possible next-door neighbor. In theory. Titus, the book that we're looking at this August, talks about doing good a lot. A lot, a lot. Do-gooders is what the Christians are supposed to be, apparently. I counted up all the references to doing good in Titus. We've got them here on the screen. There's a lot. I mean, you can see the book in its entirety laid out on the page. There's only three chapters, but um, eight references altogether. It's doing good. Um, and then, if anything, you see, as you work your way down through the letter, it gets more intense as you go through. So I haven't put all of them in there, but as you get to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul t- starts talking about being eager to do what is good. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you must be ready to do whatever is good. It's quite intense, ready to do whatever is good. By the time we get to chapter 3, verse 8 of our passage this morning, he says, you've got to be devoted to doing what is good. And then at the very end of the letter, chapter 3, verse 14, where we finish up this morning, he says, you must learn to do what is good if you're a Christian. See, that's, that's progressing. Not only does he talk about it a lot, he gets more intense about doing what is good. Titus is a book in three chapters. We've got this on the screen as, as well. Um, three chapters. Broadly speaking, you can think of it like this. Titus chapter 1 is talking about the church and what that should look like. People are going to do what is good. Chapter 2 is talking about the home and different roles within family life. And then chapter 3 is about the state. What society do you want to live in? That's where we are today. Okay. And the, the theme going through all of it is how do you do what is good? What drives that? First point this morning of two is that church people must be good. That's very obvious. And in fact, a bit pious sounding, isn't it? I'm acutely aware of that. But I just want to show you what it says here. Uh, church people must be good, verses 1 and 2. Imagine in living in a neighborhood where verses 1 and 2 happen. Here we go. Verse 1, do you see? Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. That means, if you can imagine, well, walking out of your front door and going to a local tube station, um, you notice when you get to the tube station, there is a notice saying, we never have any abuse of our staff here. We are the tube station in London that just doesn't have any. It's that sort of neighborhood. It also means that um, there's never any hoax calls to 999 in your borough. The borough are very proud of that, so the ambulances always get there on time. And it also means that in 2011, when we had riots, your borough was the one that didn't have any riots because the people are subject to the rulers and authorities. That's quite a neighborhood to live in, isn't it? We could go on. Verse uh, 1 continues to be obedient. So uh, when you step into the road, you're never in any danger of a speeding car because people are very obedient in your borough. And you're never worried about your kids running out because people keep to the speed limit. You probably should still be worried a little bit, but still... Uh, there's never any tax dodging in your borough, so um, they never have to raise the council tax above what's appropriate. Is that borough? Uh, we continue. Uh, they're ready to do whatever is good, so people always clean up the dog poo voluntarily when it's on the pavement. Wow, who does that? We, we continue. Uh, verse 2, they, they slander nobody in your neighborhood. That means all your corner shops down the road have had to reconsider um, the papers they sell because they don't want to stock anything that might be a lie. Gosh. And um, the same rule seems to apply on the internet, so there's never any um, trolling in your particular borough. What sort of neighborhood is this? Um, We could go on. It's peaceable and considerate. That means the neighbors don't play music too loud. There's no road rage. Um, No one ever holds the horn down for five seconds on your streets. And uh, no one ever gets off their bike and starts raging at a car who's cut them up. 
They're always gentle and kind towards everyone, verse 2, so that um, even if you need to ask someone directions on the street, someone's always got time for you. Wow. What a utopia you live in. Congratulations on living in the finest borough in the history of the world. Church people, you ought to be like that. In fact, my job this morning was to come and tell you, do you see verse 1? Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities. So consider yourself reminded. done my job. I think we're done. The trouble is that do-gooders, that sort of do-gooding, a really wholesome do-gooding with natural integrity, doesn't really crop up that much in history. There have been plenty of leaders who have stood on a stage, a bit like I have, with a microphone before, and they've said, we are going to create the perfect society. Come with me, people. We're going to build it here on earth. They haven't always managed it, and they haven't always had very good motivations. I was reading recently about um, something called the Holy Club, which was a a little club some Oxford uh, students formed some years ago. And it was called the Holy Club, rather mockingly, by all their peers, because these half a dozen undergraduate Oxford students were determined to be religious and do-gooders. And um, they devoted themselves to daily prayer. They fasted um, every week, even as undergraduate students. And um, they were devoted to reading tons of scripture. They even visited the the prisoners in Oxford jail because they were so determined to be pious do-gooders. The trouble was it was totally unattractive. Never gained more than six members in that state that it was in. And it was mockingly called the Holy Club because it was, there was something not right about the way they were doing it. It was a sort of do-gooding, but people could sniff that something was up. And I want to tell you why that was. The reason it really matters for our lives is if you've ever tried to be a religious person and you've felt something not right here, something I'm not getting, There's some power. There's no engine under the bonnet here. That's what the letter of Titus is all about. That's what I want to try and help us address. So it brings us to our second point, which is that church people must be slaves who are saved. Okay? Slaves saved. It's really the the, the meat of what I want to show you this morning from the Bible. And... um, I want to try and convince you that if you can't say yes to both of those two things, then there is no engine under the bonnet, and it doesn't work. And if I could do it pictorially, then I'd say it a bit like this. Um, I want to try and um, lower our view of ourselves. In fact, I'm going to try and lower it right down to the ground this morning to show you that humanity are slaves. And then I want to try and raise our view of God so we can raise it right up to the ceiling. And if we can get those two things right, lower our view of ourselves, raise our view of God, then I think... We're doing exactly what it says here, okay? Church people must be, first of all, slaves. That is, they need a a low, a a radical understanding of humans. We live in an age which is relentlessly positive about humanity, and I'm cautious about saying this stuff to you this morning. I'm not supposed to tell my children that they did something wrong. I'm just supposed to praise them for the positives. I'm not supposed to say anything that someone might deem offensive. I'm just supposed to keep quiet about it. But how offensive is verse 3? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. How offensive is that? You don't just do wrong. You haven't just done a few wrong things in your life, God says. 
It's not just like you've got a couple of blots on your copybook. It's like the plot line of your copybook is one massive blot. You're a slave, it says. I want to caveat this idea that um, we're, we're lowering our um, view of ourselves here with one very important thing, which we'll get to. But you see how, gosh, this is uh, offensive. I am a slave, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Is this really true? Could it possibly be true that God is saying to London today, you lot, you're slaves? No, what he's saying we're slaves to enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. I know a man who was enslaved to a passion and pleasure, and he, he got into the habit of visiting prostitutes for a number of months and years, and eventually when he was found out, it, as you might expect, tore apart his marriage and his family. Was he enslaved? Yes. He was enslaved by this passion, this pleasure he derived from visiting prostitutes. He couldn't stop. We're not talking about prostitutes here, per se, but what, see what he says next, Paul. We lived in malice and envy. Malice, it's been said, is um, wishing that bad things would happen to somebody else. So, um, oh, you've got a presentation coming up at work. I hope, you, I hope you fail. I hope it's rubbish and you trip over the carpet and you can't remember your lines. Malice. Envy, which comes next, is, uh, it's been said, wishing that good things hadn't happened to somebody. I wish you'd never landed that promotion or that job or never got into that relationship. That's, that's envy. You see, malice, I wish bad things don't happen to you. Envy, I wish good things hadn't happened to you. And this is saying, this offensive part of the Bible saying that you and I are enslaved to that sort of thing. It's like two chains around my ankles. Malice, envy, that I drag around with me everywhere I go. I think perhaps but there's no finer illustration of that in the 21st century of how we're enslaved to malice and envy than what reality TV has brought us. Do you happen to remember the first series of Big Brother? Apparently that was in the year 2000. And uh, I think more people watched it then than they do now, didn't they? Didn't they? Do you remember that we were, for a while, the nation was agog as there was um, cameras everywhere and you were able to watch human beings in a, in a relatively ordinary house thrown in there to do nothing else except for coexist as human beings for, I don't know, an interminably long time. And it became entertaining, I think, not so much because they were playing for a prize, but because you were just waiting to see what the next knife in the back was going to be. You were waiting to see who was going to turn around and bite the other person's head off that day and how it was going to all play out and blow up. I think probably every reality TV series ever since then has played on the same theme of malice and envy. The Apprentice, the island, whatever it's called, with Bear grills and all that sort of thing. As you watch these human beings doing that sort of thing. And there are moments in, back in reality uh, when I am utterly fed up of living in a city that's dominated by malice and envy. It sometimes seems to me like the tube tunnels underneath London are stuffed full of malice and envy as, I'm, for some reason, I really resent the person who got on one train ahead of me because they could squeeze onto the carriage and I couldn't. And um, the property market is seemingly stuffed full of malice and envy because that person has a slightly better house than me and I can't stand it. And sometimes my family is stuffed full of malice and envy, whether it's my immediate family or my extended family. 
I know this is very negative. I know it's very offensive. I'm not saying that human beings are like this all the time. However, even though I know some very good human beings, remember the problem that it's talking about here. It says, I am a slave to these things. Uh, Being enslaved to something means I have a, a, a master that dominates me, that calls the shots and tells me what to do, and I can't escape from them. It's not saying that I'm incapable of occasional other actions, doing things that are quite nice and kind to people. I'm sure a slave can do that. But fundamentally, I'm ruled and dominated by a slave master. And as if to compound the problem, see, it says, this is my fault. Paul opens up in verse 3. At one time, we were foolish. Foolish is the Bible's word for saying that there is no God. We know that from um, Psalm 14 and 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So foolish is the Bible's word for an atheist who says there isn't a God. Disobedient, the next word. That's the Bible's word for saying, I I won't do what God says. And deceived, that's the next word. That's the concept, of course, for saying, he's not going to punish me, which comes about in Genesis chapter 3. I don't think there's a God, even if he's not there. I don't like him. Uh, I'm not going to do what he says, and he's not going to punish me anyway. You see how, how I tried to warn you at the beginning, this is a really radical understanding of the human race. You can just feel the, the view of the human race and what we achieve just dropping, 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 all the way down. I told you I have to caveat this. I'll just caveat this heavily heavily just for one second. I am not saying that we have a low view of the human race um, in terms of our value. I don't want uh, anyone to go away thinking uh, we have a a low value of a human race because the Bible is so utterly clear about that, being made in the image of God and having, having an incredible privilege in the way that we're created. But what I am trying to say from the Bible is that we have a low value in terms of our achievement. Sorry, not a low value in terms of our achievement. We, we, we have a low view in terms of our achievement. We're slaves. It was mentioned last week by um, Andy when he was leading the service, but remember this, this terrible terror attack in Finland which happened last week? I heard someone talking on the radio, and it, it was a British guy who stepped in and intervened. I think he was a paramedic who happened to be in Finland at the time, and this woman had been stabbed by a, a terror attacker, and he, he, this British paramedic was the guy who tried to step in and save the woman. And in doing so, he was stabbed several times, but just about survived. They interviewed him on the Sunday morning, and he said, do you know what? I'd do it again. I'd do it again. At which point I thought, oh, that's Britain. Hero, stepping in. I'd do it again. What he said next made me sad. He said, the world is such a terrible place. If we don't help each other, who will? Of course, at one, at one level, I'm glad that there's someone out there doing good like that. But if we don't help each other, I think the biblical answer is you remain slaves. Because we're in such a bad situation. If we don't help each other, then nothing's going to happen anyway. We can't get out of slavery. Of course, the glory of the truth in the Bible, the brilliance of it all, which we'll see just now, is that God helps us. If we don't help each other, God steps in and helps us. There is no smugness in this, just before we leave our view of humanity. It's it's down here on the floor. We're utterly unable to rescue ourselves because we're slaves, and we're not allowed to be smug about it. Because you see the way it starts off in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish. 
Sometimes Christians can be a bit odd about this, as if um, it's us and them. You know, as if um, there's the rest of the world who um, is not a Christian, and then there's us, the church, who are fantastic do-gooders and pretty smug about it, and there's, there's basically two uh, sides of humanity. Here, no room for smugness, because we all began in the same camp. Continue that thought as we come on to our second sub-point. We have to understand that we're slaves with a low view. And then we have to understand that we are saved. That is, church people need a radical understanding of God. This is big, one big, long Greek sentence in verses um, 4 to 7. My big, fat Greek sentence. Um, but it has one main verb in, in the original which just stands out and makes it nice and clear. You ready for it? Verse 5. He saved us. That's the main idea. It really stands out. At its heart, it's very, very simple. God saved us. I remember when I was um, very young, I think I must have been four, because it's just about my earliest memory. Uh, I was on holiday, um, summer holidays, and we had a pool, great luxury, and um, little four-year-old toddling around the pool with no one else around, I plopped into the pool didn't know the danger, must have put a toe in to see what it felt like, and I fell in. And my earliest memory is of the, the water hovering about my eyes as I uh, didn't realize what danger I was in, but knew it wasn't very clever. And then I remember my dad coming around the corner, realizing what was happening, jumping in and saving me. He saved us. My dad saved me in that situation. I want you to see there's something better, more glorious, bigger going on here. He saved us. That is, if you like, a Christian's earliest memory. I was a slave and God came and saved me. In particular, he saved me. I want to just explore the, the he with you. Uh, he, that is, God who is a trinity. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. You see, they're actually all here. They're all mentioned. Have a look down at verse 4. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's referring to God the Father. When the Bible just says God, it means the Father. And then in verse 6, it talks about Jesus Christ our Savior. So there's Jesus. But in the middle of it all, there's the Holy Spirit in verse 5, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So God, he saved me. And I just, just for a moment, um, I want to show you who the he is, who the Father is, who who the God is who scoops us up in our arms and plucks us out of slavery and saves us and makes you end up with a high view of God all the way up to the ceiling. First of all, God the Father. Do you see? Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. God our Savior, of course. I wonder how you think of God. It's rather tempting to think of God, isn't it? As a sort of distant, aloof, uh, old man on a cloud with a beard, um, very far away. This says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. That is, God is kind. God the Father, he's kind. That kindness is in our face all the time, actually, because of the incarnation. So when it says appeared, we saw this a bit last week, I'm talking about the incarnation here, that when Jesus Christ appears on earth, God's kindness appeared to us. And if you like, it comes around every year at Christmas time. God's kindness is just in my face again. He's so kind. I'm reminded of it every 25th of December. 
he is also perfectly uh, just, and he does everything perfectly. And part of that perfection is being kind. So that's God the Father. Secondly, God the Holy Spirit. Do you notice anything slightly unusual about this order? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. You're all being very British. Normally, right, it, it comes slightly differently. You normally get Father, Son, Spirit. Here, you get Father, Spirit, Son. Why is that? If anything, the, the Holy Spirit is the hero of this passage because he gets the most stuff said about him. He, Paul sort of goes to town. You see verse 5? Uh, because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit is at the center of it all, and gets the most said about him, which is a reasonably rare occurrence in the Bible. Washing, rebirth, renewal. Or if, if I was going to put it really simply, I'd say a totally new start is what the Holy Spirit offers me. Isn't that, in fact, what the world could do with? Isn't that, in fact, why the Holy Spirit, Paul, switches up the order here, gives you the Trinity in an unfamiliar configuration? Is because what we're dealing with here, with our low view of humanity being enslaved and nothing can free me. What I need is for God to step in and do something by the Holy Spirit, which is so new and requires nothing from me because I can't offer anything anyway, so full of grace, that that's the Holy Spirit's work. It's the thing that starts the engine and begins to uh, get me going in my religious life. This is why the Holy Spirit is celebrated here. And then you see the order, we're not quite done yet. So Father, Holy Spirit, and then you get to the Son because the Holy Spirit's job is to wake me up and open my eyes and regenerate me in biblical terms to the Son who has done the work. See verses 6 and 7. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, which are the things that Jesus Christ buys me. I'm, I'm justified, that is, declared perfect in God's sight. And I become an heir of eternal life. I've got an irreversible declaration that I belong in heaven forever. Have you ever been named in a will? I've never had it, but I imagine if you, if you get named in a will with some sort of uh, riches coming your way, especially if you're not expecting it, that must be quite something. When Jesus Christ, our Savior, dies on the cross, it's like you get named in his will. And you become an heir having the hope of eternal life. God the Father actually gives himself twice over to us in this passage, you see. He gives himself in the Holy Spirit to wake me up and begin to empower my Christian life. And then he gives himself to me and his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He gives himself twice. That's how kind he is. This is the God who saves us, you see. It's very, very simple. He saved us. He, Father, Spirit, Son. I wish I had time, more time to, to uh, tell you about it. The clock is ticking. You see how we're getting this, this low view of humanity. We're right down here. We're slaves. And we're getting this high view of God. This is no two-bit, cheap-as-chips religion that might one day maybe make an impact on the world. Maybe one, one day a neighborhood will be changed by this sort of message. This is God's entire salvation plan poured out in himself twice over. We've talked about it in previous weeks. Like a diamond on a ring, like an engagement ring where the message of the gospel, what we've just read about in verses 4 to 7, is like a diamond 
and then the rest of my life is a is this, the rest of the ring, the, the setting for it. And I have the choice whether to adorn the diamond or whether to just throw it away, chuck it in with the rest of the stuff in my life. Interestingly, do you want to know how the Holy Club worked out? The, the little group of half a dozen unattractive, pious do-gooders in Oxford. They discovered the diamond. And each one of them had a decisive moment where they were woken up by the Holy Spirit and they discovered God's grace in the gospel. And it totally transformed not just England, but also Scotland and Wales and America, which was um, colonized at the time. And one man in particular, John Wesley, became the pioneer of the, something called the Great Awakening in the 18th century, where he went around telling people about the diamond, in fact, giving the diamond away to other people, saying, you've got to see this, you've got to see how low we are, and yet how high God is, and I want you to have this too. And he preached and preached and preached, and he went around on horseback, all over the country and America, preaching. And the man who was the, the ringleader of the unattractive, pious do-gooders, who couldn't work out why there was no power under the bonnet, became the one who transformed England, Scotland, Wales, and America. In particular, there are historians, including one French historian, Halivet, they, they reckon that this reason, this message that we've just read in Titus, was the reason that England never had a full-blown revolution. Isn't that interesting? Because it makes you such a good citizen of the state that it actually changes everything. It does change your neighborhood. In particular, there's this French historian, which is poignant because, of course, the French had a massive revolution. And they look across the channel and they think, why didn't that happen in England as well, given all the political things that were going on? And the reason, as far as this French historian Halivet can, can surmise, is that England had John Wesley and other preachers like him who went around giving away this gospel diamond, giving away the message that we have a low view of humanity and a high view of God. And the truth leads to godliness. Those are two things. Church people must be slaves saved. I want to say to you this morning, if you can say yes to both those two things, that's an authentic Titus 3 sort of Christianity. If you can't say yes to one of those things, if you end up with only one or neither, then there is something lacking as a sticking point in this whole process. Where does Paul go in, in concluding the whole letter of Titus? He says um, two little points of application. First of all, verse 8, stress these truths. And uh, secondly, second point of application, avoid foolish controversies. So he says stress these truths in verse 8. Uh, in particular, this is a trustworthy saying, verse 8, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. There's our phrase again. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. When he says these things, I want you to stress these things. You know what he's talking about, right? It's what we've just read. It's, it's particularly verses um, 3 to 7, low view of humanity, high view of God. Stress that. In particular, you could translate that as stress it emphatically. Insist upon it with your congregation. Go on and on and on and on about it. Stress it, pastor. Because Titus is a letter, a letter that's written to a pastor, I found this quite a challenge in considering what I talk about which I assume is not just sermons, because it's, it's rather expected of me to talk about God uh, when I stand up and preach a sermon. But what do I talk about in my conversations, in my prayers, public or private, 
in my emails and my texts because I'm told here to stress it emphatically, make sure that I talk about that. And therefore there is a challenge there for all of us in a church who want to do what is good, who believe that we have a gospel diamond. Whether or not we enjoy turning over the old story in our conversations, or whether that's just a little bit passe, a little bit old. I don't talk about that again. We all take that for granted. That's the positive. I know it sounds rather obvious. Stress these truths. But you see what the negative is. Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. Avoid foolish controversies. That is, positively talk about these things, the gospel diamond, as a safeguard so that you don't constantly end up talking about the latest high-profile Christian leader who might have done something foolish or the known subject of division in a church or the topic that we disagree about the leadership on and we want to talk about again. And the things that we love to get our conversational teeth into if we're given a chance. You see, there's a positive challenge here. Talk about this. And partly just as a safeguard, so you don't spend all the time talking about this. This is true. This is foolish. People in churches sometimes write long letters and uh, emails about foolish things. Not Christchurch Mayfair. It doesn't happen here. And, and uh, they get very angry and they call church business meetings and they table motions and they take votes about foolish controversies, like in verse 9. Whereas I wonder what would happen if we put that much effort into stressing the gospel with each other who are consciously turning it over in our conversations and our messages. You see, in conclusion, church people must do good. But it's not for the sort of pious do-gooding reason that we automatically assume when we start off the chapter. We must do good because I have a low view of what I am achieving and a very high view of what God is achieving. We'll only ever manage that if we're saved slaves and just supposing, just supposing you leave your house again and you walk through your neighborhood on the way to the tube station. In that sort of neighborhood, it should be possible in a Titus three society for the religious people, the Christian people to say, I have had uh, God be so kind to me, do such good to me, that I can't help but do good to other people. And it should be possible in that neighborhood as well for the, the atheists and the skeptics to say, Look, I can't agree with you on this Father, Holy Spirit, Son stuff. But I, I see the sort of neighborhood that you create. I see the sort of state that you Christians do good into. And it's the sort of neighbor I want to have. If the church can get this right in the 21st century, then more and more atheists and skeptics will say that in London. But it will only happen if we stress these things. We pray that we'll do that. Lord God Almighty, who has saved us, Father and Holy Spirit and Son, we pray for your help as we live in this city that we so desperately want to do good for and we so want to know about the gospel diamond. Uh, we pray that you would empower that in the knowledge of uh, who we are as human beings and, and what you've saved us to be. We praise you, Father, Spirit and Son. And we pray that you might empower our Christian lives and our doing good so that it's not just pious do-gooding in our own strength, but it flows out of the kindness 
of our great God and Saviour. Amen.